Hebrews chapter 13, please. Hebrews chapter number 13. And let's go ahead and stand, please. I want to begin in verse number 10. And we're going to read to verse number 16. Verses 15 and 16 are actually our text for this morning. Hebrews 13, verse number 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore... Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And let's pray. Lord, may we be thankful always that you have spoken to us, that You have condescended to talk to us who are but dust and ashes. And that you have spoken to us good words and true words. That they are words that give life. And so please help us to give careful attention to them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may of course be seated. Well, what to us is the book of Hebrews, which, and we'll get to this in a few weeks toward the very end of the book, in fact, perhaps the last message from the book. What to us is a book is actually a written, recorded sermon. As if the pastor had spoken and it was transcribed for us. It is highly doctrinal in nature. It has, I don't want to say one main point, but it has one agenda, which is that people who profess faith in Christ maintain that profession throughout the course of their lives, and it serves to help us to understand what he means. What does it mean to hold on to your profession? What would that, what would that look like? There are five distinct sections of severe and strong admonition in the sermon that are all tied to this. What what might it look like? What might be the end result if people walk away from their profession? 
the bulk of the practical, that which seems to be what people immediately want to know, what, what should I do with this, is found in chapter 13. So again, there are episodic admonitions, these so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Somber, serious, take them to heart. But to get into, well, what do you want me to do then? What does maintaining my profession look like? The answer to that is found in chapter 13. The doctrine, of course, is oriented around the way Christ is envisioned in the law and in the Levitical system, but is separate from the law and the Levitical system. He is far superior to it, both in what he did and who he is. And what the Hebrews have discovered is that the practice of Christianity has brought to them persecution. And there's always been persecution for Christianity. I think that numbers of us are wondering if the day is coming in America where that will take on an institutionalized form, a greater degree than what we're already experiencing, which will prove to be an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. But the history of Christianity is that it has brought persecution. It has brought unpopularity. And so these Hebrew people who have a long history of the practice of Judaism, that is the culture in which they grew up, and have departed from that Judaism to embrace Christ, now now at least some of them are thinking about making a return back to Judaism because it's not a persecuted religion. And so can I believe in Jesus and my external practices be the law and would that be okay? And the pastor is making the argument that it is not okay, that you cannot return and that you cannot go back. He's making more of an argument than that. He's raising the question of why would you want to go back? Why would you return to something inferior when you have something superior? But, right, just if you'll just indulge me for a moment, right, and I'm just going to do a little bit of typecasting here for the sake of illustration. Supposing that our government makes the official proclamation that the rights of all professing atheists will be honored. And that if you're an atheist, you have the full sanction and support and the powers of the U.S. federal government at your disposal to protect your atheism. And then suppose they come out and announce that all Islam will have the official support and sanction of the federal government. And I know that some of you are going, well, we already live in that world. I understand that. And that the government will bring its full weight to support all who want to practice and profess any of the tenets of Islam. But any other religious profession is no longer protected And we will use the powers of the federal government 
to seek out and to crush any and all who practice any other form of religion. Now, for some of us, right, that would be troubling and our thoughts would run along the lines of, I wonder what God's protection will look like when I'm being hauled off to jail. But you have to understand, folks, that there's a large body of people in America who would not really identify as either atheist or Muslim. But if the only way to enjoy the benefits and the protections of the government were to become atheist or Muslim, what might they do? In other words, we sit here and, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not off on some kind of government conspiracy thing this morning, but what if, what if one of the next things to come out was that Social Security benefits will not be paid to professing Christians? What do you suppose that might do to the color of professing Christians in America? If the government really decides to go after the practice, and if it really begins to retract possessions and rights and property from those who possess it, which is what these Hebrew people had experienced at some level and what many of the New Testament churches that we read about in the Bible had experienced. Not just a general hostility, but an actual reaching out and imprisoning and of property confiscation. We have to understand that that would change the way we think about our commitments. I mean, I just don't know of a pastor, folks. I just don't know of a pastor who hasn't had conversations with other pastors about what the shape of their congregation looks like with COVID. I mean, there, there, there are congregations that have been greatly diminished by people who never came back from, never, COVID came and they stopped going out and they've never been back to church. And churches have been divided over things like wearing masks and getting vaccinations. Can we imagine for a moment that if the government decided to confiscate the scavings accounts of all professing Christians, there wouldn't be some people who would be rethinking their profession? So this is not just abstract theory. It is something that most of us have never really experienced but we don't know that that will continue. And the pastor then to that group of people points out to them this doctrine that Christ in one act, in one moment of dying on the cross for the sins of man accomplished what the law could never accomplish in all of its sacrifices, in all of its varieties. And that having committed themselves to him, as he committed them himself to them, they have obtained an eternal inheritance. And that it is the nature of genuine faith that it be enduring because God is enduring. He's, he's not trying to be difficult and to play games, but 
What does God do that is not eternal? So a genuine faith will be a faith that persists even if the Social Security checks get cut off. Even if the money in the bank accounts gets confiscated. Because it is eternal faith. What God has given. And this is part of what Paul, or I said Paul, I'm sorry, because I don't think it was Paul that wrote it. This is part of what the pastor is arguing in verses 10 through 14. Right? And although I didn't preach this, I think you could make the point, right? That we're to go outside to the unpopular place to be with Christ, not try to drag him into the popularity of the culture. And this is because what he has done. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Right? All those animals, that's a whole different system. We have no connection to it. Our connection is Christ, verse 12, wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us go therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. All of this Old Testament language, all of this Old Testament reference. I mean, the only way to make any sense out of verses 10 through 13 is to go back and look at it in light of the law. We dealt with that. Then in verse number 15, the pastor begins to turn his attention to the practical dimension of that. What does that mean? I'm not Old Testament. I'm not under the law. There's a real sense, folks, in which you couldn't really be under the law unless you were born ethnically a Hebrew. We're not under the law. We're not under the law ethnically. We're not under the law theologically. We don't kill goats and lambs and calves. We don't do that. We don't bring the animal sacrifices. We don't observe the feast days. We don't observe the Sabbath day. I don't know what you did yesterday but I'm willing to bet almost everything that I own in this world that you didn't sit in your house in the dark in deference to the Sabbath. But there are then New Testament ways to worship. There is a New Testament response to the sacrificial work of Christ. So verses 15 and 16 then, in light of this reality, we have an altar that the Old Testament people don't have. We have a salvation that they don't have. We have a Savior that they don't have. We have a mediator that they don't have. But we still bring sacrifices to the Lord. And for us, let's begin with this then. Verse number 15. By him, therefore. By him, therefore. Our sacrifices to God go through Jesus. 
Our sacrifices to God go through Jesus. Not the Levitical system. Not Moses. Our sacrifices go to God through Jesus. That little word by there actually can be translated through. And usually is. Through him. Three times the pastor has told us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. 8.6.9.15.12.24 Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Over here is God, so to speak. Over here is us, so to speak. And the one who stands in the middle representing both sides in the conversation and the transactions is the Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man. He is the mediator. And what that means, folks, in a theological sense, is that everything that God has, that He wants to give to us and do for us, which is a bunch, goes through Jesus. And anything that we want to say to God, or anything that we want to ask of God, goes through Jesus. This is what's really built into, folks, the idea. When Jesus said, if you will ask anything in my name. He's not telling us the right formula to use to end a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. He is telling us that our ability to secure things from God comes to the fact that we can ask them, in effect, with Jesus' approval. With Jesus' authorization, He is the mediator. How do I get to God the Father? Through Jesus the Son. And how does God give to me all that He wants to give to me? Through Jesus the Son. And so I read that God is the creator, and how did He create? He created all things through the Word. And I read that God sustains the universe, and how does God sustain the universe? Through Jesus the Son. And God wants to save men, and how does He save men? By becoming the Son, or by becoming man and dying. He didn't become the Son, He was always the Son. By becoming man and dying for the sins of man as the Son, in the person of the Son. All that God gives to us, all that God does for us, comes through the Son. He is the mediator. We don't spend a lot of time in this in churches like our folks, but, but I, there's, no, there's no mediatory role between you and me and God. You don't come to me to get to God. I don't go to you to get to God. But we all go to Jesus to get to God. Or we don't get to God. It's that simple. So, again, to go back to this. Because of who Christ is. Because of the fact that we are new covenant people. Because we understand that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Because we understand this theology through him, therefore, through Jesus, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So, secondly, Right? Firstly, we offer sacrifices to God the Father through Jesus the Son. Secondly, 
the sacrifices that we offer are never sacrifices for sin. The sacrifices we offer are never on account of our sin. In the Old Testament, you started with sin sacrifices. Under the Levitical system, all interaction with God through the mediator of Moses and the Levitical system began by addressing human sinfulness. First we address human sinfulness. Then we go on to other things. And without going back to read it all, reread it all, and to revisit it all, folks, this is the point that the pastor has been making in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. Not in a tedious fashion, but in a meticulous fashion, so that those people and so that we would understand this. We do not atone for our own sins. We do not bring whatever residue of human goodness we can bring to the picture and God makes up the difference, right? It's not like a parent, you know, here's a kid that wants a new, I don't even know anymore, I'm so far out of the loop, a new PlayStation or an Xbox and they got $20 and the thing costs $400 and mom and dad make up the difference. None of that for us. Christ has paid it all. He has absorbed all of our sinfulness, absorbed all of our guilt. And in fact, folks, it even goes on beyond that because in some way he actually became the sin that God would vent his anger upon. Paul said he became sin for us. This is not to say that believers never sin, but our sins are dealt with by the blood of Christ and that changes the way that we interact with God. We have an access to God that Old Testament people don't have because our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ and we know that. Now again, this is, with, and I don't, maybe I shouldn't even raise this, but that was equally true of David and Moses. They just didn't understand that as fully as you and I did. But we know, we know that Christ came and that he died and that his death was adequate for all. So to return to the text, by him, therefore, our sacrifices go to God through Christ but they are not sacrifices for sin. Christ has paid the debt of sin for us. But the sacrifices that we do offer, thirdly, should nevertheless be pleasing to the Lord. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So we don't want to come to the conclusion or come to a, a, a way of thinking that because we live under the reign of grace, and we do Romans chapter 5, that there's no such thing as sacrifice for us. That, that no part of our religious experience, if I can put it that way, is sacrificial in nature. 
Now, it's not liturgical in nature, folks. It's not ritualistic in nature. But New Testament people give sacrifices to God. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. We still make offerings to Him. You're still supposed to do that. Jesus said that the Father was looking for true worshipers. True worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Not just people who have Bible words in their mouths, but people who wish to worship God in their hearts. And that word pleased is just, it just means nothing other than pleased. You can take it right back to Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. Enoch pleased God, and without faith it is not possible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So I'm a New Testament believer. And I understand that I'm not under the law, that Christ died on the cross for my sins, paid them fully, that all he requires of me is to believe that, and that he imparts then to me new and eternal life. And I'm supposed to worship. And part of my worship is to offer him sacrifices. Offerings, to make offerings to him. And in verses 15 and 16, the pastor then outlines three. You'll notice that he concludes by saying, with such sacrifices, and that's because there are three. He is not suggesting, I am not suggesting, that this is an exhaustive list. But here are three New Testament sacrifices that we should offer. The first is found, of course, in verse number 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. <clears throat> and and what, what he's doing there, right? Let me just kind of talk about some of the definitions. The word offer means to bring it to God, <clears throat> to make it as a present to God, a presentation to him. I think the idea is being conscious and specific of what we're doing. Sacrifice here doesn't mean a dead animal covered in blood, but it means that thing which is offered. I I know who I'm bringing it to and I know what I'm doing. I'm doing something deliberately and consciously with God in mind. And in this case, it is praise. This is the only place in the Bible where praise is a noun. Usually it's a verb. The sacrifice of praise to God continually. Continually. In the Old Testament system, the fire burned continually. And I want to take just a moment, and I don't want to lose, I don't want to sacrifice too much of the message in talking about this, but I know that Some of you have a different translation than the King James, and our King James translates it 
the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. In other words, what I'm bringing consciously and specifically and deliberately to God the Father through Jesus the Son is a praise that is gratitude to him. And you'll notice, folks, and we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks in adult Sunday school in Providence, giving thanks to his name. And his name is Jehovah, the one who is. And the idea there is the recognition of all that it means, as we, the best we can understand it, the recognition of all that it means for him to be the God who exists all by himself. Having all power, having no need, having all ability, having only righteousness, no sinfulness. His name. And for those of you that have an ESV, the translation is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The word that is used, and again, I, I don't want to bog down in this, but the word that is actually used, the Greek word, is the idea of profess. That's the word in the Greek text. And in the, in the New Testament, when you read it, it's used about two dozen times. It's almost always profess or confess. Sometimes it's promise. But most of the time it's confess. So why did I get our translators translate it praise? And I think that it goes back to the book of Leviticus. I think that they're doing a very good job of tying the concept to an Old Testament concept. Because this New Testament practice is anchored in Old Testament imagery. That as an Israelite would come and would willfully, consciously, and deliberately present an offering to God. We are doing the same. This is not accidental. It is not inadvertent. It is a conscious act on the part of believing people to praise the Lord by expressing gratitude. One of the offerings that a Jew could make was the peace offering. And there are three several different kinds of peace offerings that he made. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Leviticus 7.11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Now these offerings, if we were Old Testament people offering peace offerings. We're not offering those offerings to obtain peace. We're not saying, here God is an offering, now please be at peace with me. What we're saying is, God, here is something that I offer to you in worship because we are at peace because we have already dealt with our sins. Which, by the way, folks, if I can just kind of paint this with a very broad brush. There, There are a couple of approaches churches can take. Church denominations, individual churches, organizations, or you individually. Right? We can look at religious expression or religious practice primarily, right? and many churches are doing this now, as, as ways in which to convince the people that God is acceptable. Or we can... Talk to the people, pointing out to them what would have to happen for God to find them acceptable. Now there's a world of difference, but that's the biblical position. 
But the Bible, the Bible is never telling us what God is willing to do to find our approval. It is always telling us what we need to do to find His. He's the judge. So I have dealt with my sins. I have brought as an Old Testament practitioner. I have brought the appropriate sacrifices from the right kind of heart. Believing that this is what God has instructed me to do. And he has accepted those offerings. And now the hostility. God's anger towards me for my sinfulness. Is eased. And I am at peace. I'd like to offer him a thanksgiving for that. I think that's what's tied here. These were, these were celebrations when you read about them. The priest got a portion. These were times of gratitude and celebrating peace with God. He's not going to kill me today. I think that's why the translators put it this way. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. And the words, the expression fruit of our lips is actually taken from Hosea. Again, you don't need to turn to it, but let me just read you two verses from Hosea. Hosea 14, 1 and 2. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words. Turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. And I deliberately pronounce the calf. Calf. Bulls and cows have calves. So will we render the calves of our lips. In other words, our mouth will be like the offering of an animal. Our lips will be instruments of sacrifice like a dead sheep is an instrument of sacrifice. So again, folks, let's go back to the text, right? Let's remember, spent a lot of time this morning kind of painting the context here. Here are people who have been, and perhaps are facing again, persecution for believing the name Jesus. For practicing New Testament Christianity. And we know that some of the people who have been their leaders, it comes up at the very end of the book, are people who have been imprisoned for their Christianity. Now, what are we supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? And again, hopefully this will never happen. But the government announces in America that it can no longer tolerate fundamental Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, and all bank account, all assets will be frozen, and all Social Security and Medicare payments will be suspended. Now, what are you supposed to do? Hebrews thirteen fifteen is what you're supposed to do. Praise the Lord. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the attitude that we're supposed to bring. That's the way we're supposed to think. You know, folks, in the Bible, the Lord never said, go out and seek persecution. But when it came, His people always had the same attitude. They found it gratitude-inducing that they were worthy to suffer it. 
That was how closely they identified with the name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, do we ever wonder this, folks? And I'm not, I'm not picking on you because I am, I am cut out of the same cloth as you are, but do we ever wonder if God gets weary of listening to us gripe all the time about everything? About all the people that we know and about all the things that we do, that they do, and all the stuff that, that, that they can't, I mean, everything that goes wrong and everything that, everything that induces stress and everything that is contrary to what we want, and on and on and on and on and on and on we go. I can tell you this, when the Israelites complained like that, God just began wholesale massacre. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We are on our way, folks. Verse number 14. Here we have no continuing city, but we are seeking one to come. That is praiseworthy. The second sacrifice is found in verse number 16. But to do good. But to do good. The word means do that which is beneficial. Do that which is beneficial. Or do that which is commendable. Right? We find, we find a part of this word in the parables, when Jesus said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do that which is commendable. Do that which is beneficial. So, give thanks to the Lord's name. Give thanks to a Savior and to the prospect of an eternal city and to the forgiveness of sins. And to do that consciously, willfully, deliberately, knowingly. And to do things that are commendable. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To do those things that God will praise. That God finds praiseworthy. This is a New Testament sacrifice. I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. I could do this. Which one will God commend? Do that one. Do that one. And then verse number 16, the third sacrifice, and to communicate. To communicate. It's actually the word fellowship. Usually when it's put in this kind of a context and in this kind of framework, it has the idea of financial fellowship. And again, you can, right? So, I mean, let us let me just take my wild, stretched out, hopefully never happen, exaggerated illustration to the conclusion. The government suspends all social security payments to believers of people who are members of independent Baptist churches. That's going to create some real financial crises for some people. What should, what should the church do? Communicate. Get into that fellowship. Help those 
who have a need. In 2 Corinthians 8, 4, that's the way that it's used. Paul commended those or encouraged them to take on the fellowship of ministering to the saints. He's talking about an offering. In 2 Corinthians 9, 14, the same word is translated distribution, your liberal distribution. I think it can be expanded beyond simply the money, right? Don't abandon the congregation. Don't abandon the prayer praying for, which he will get to, and encouraging and helping, but don't abandon financially the people of God who are suffering, particularly if they're suffering for doing that which is right. So, there are concrete sacrifices, folks. If I put, look, if I could put it this way, right? <clears throat> Nobody gives accidentally. Giving is always conscious, right? I mean, you, you have to know whatever mechanism you're using to communicate. I mean, you want to give somebody cash or you want to give an offering to the Lord through the church. You have to write the check or click on the button or put the money in the offering plate. It's always conscious and willful and deliberate. It always is. There's nothing wrong with our good deeds being conscious and willful and deliberate as well. And there's nothing wrong with offering to God praises that are deliberate and conscious and thought out. With thinking about what God has done and promised and saying, I'm going to thank you and praise you for these things that you have promised and for these things that you have done. These are sacrifices that are pleasing. There's more to what we do, folks, than going to church and singing songs, although that's a great part of it and what a blessing the music ministry has already been this day. So we have our own types of sacrifices, not for sin. Jesus paid for our sins. But we're offering sacrifices to God as New Testament people that are grateful hearts and beneficial lives and fellowship with God's people. Let's pray.